Hello everyone. I'm Victoria Main, CEO at Combida Associates. Welcome to the latest of our Brussels Calling Media Debates, the series which turns the tables on journalists and requires them to answer rather than just ask questions, is entering its seventh year. Today we focus on what it takes for Europe to catch up with China and the US and become a digital leader. As moderator, we're thrilled to have Margareta Vestager, the European Commission's Executive Vice President for a Europe fit for the digital age. The Executive Vice President, who is also Competition Commissioner, will be grilling our panel of tech and innovation journalists. Before handing over to Mrs. Vestager, allow me to introduce our stellar panel. No stranger to the Brussels crowd is Natalia Drozdiak, who's the European technology correspondent for Bloomberg and also previously worked at the Wall Street Journal. In London, we have John Thornhill, who is the FT's innovation editor and also host of the Tectonic podcast series, which not surprisingly features Mrs. Vestager. Crossing the Atlantic, Cara Fisher has been described by Newsweek as Silicon Valley's most powerful tech journalist, Cara is an opinion editor at the New York Times and host of the podcast Sway. Last but far from least, we have old Brussels hand, Ryan Heath. Ryan not only launched Politico's, Politico Europe's playbook newsletter, but he made it a morning must read. A true citizen of the world, he's gone on to launch the Global Translations newsletter from his US base. Uh, rest assured, everybody, there will be time for questions to the journalists at the end, so please feed them into the Q&A chat and also feel free to tweet using the Brussels calling hashtag. Thank you very much. Enough of me. Over to you, Mrs. Vestager. Well, thank you very much, uh, Victoria. Thank you for the introductions. As, uh, as you can see, this is really an excellent panel. Uh, these are the four people that shapes uh, uh, opinions, uh, that decides uh, what we should read, what we should talk about uh, on any other day of the week. So I'm really, I've really been looking forward to, uh, for this. Uh, and in particular, since we are in, in really uh, tricky times, uh, obviously, in, in my own uh, country, Denmark, uh, today is the first year anniversary for the lockdown. Uh, as today, the Prime Minister uh, um, held a, a first of many press conferences uh, to completely lock down the country. Um, and, and that, I think, is, is one of the things that we will discuss today. What is, how do you see the role of the state? Uh, the role of the state in a pandemic, but also the role of the state when it comes to technology. Because one of the things that we have ahead of us uh, right now is of course for democracy to catch up with the technological development. Uh, part of that, in order to make the most of technology, there's so many things that can happen that was not at all possible before. But in order to, to unleash that potential of better health connectivity, mobility, uh, you know, all the many promises of world-class education uh, for everyone, to unleash that, uh, obviously, we need to get better in control of the dark side uh, of tech. Uh, and that is why we are on an, uh, an endeavor uh, of uh, regulation, uh, just as well as an endeavor of, uh, 
of uh, upskilling, uh, reskilling, and um, an investment. Uh, we started out uh, almost to the day a year ago with a digital strategy as to how to make the most of digitization uh, in Europe to the benefit of citizens. Uh, because this will be a turning point, uh, I think, uh, so to realize that, yes, it may be technical. Yes, they may talk about nodes. Yes, they take about micro talk about microelectronics, but it's really about people. It's about what we want to achieve, what we dream about, how we push things. And, uh, and this is not a new thing because we have uh, the privacy uh, regulation already. Uh, we have the copyright uh, regulation already that we have pushed forward. Uh, we have for on the input side of thing, the Data Governance Act to make sure that more data can be made available. Uh, we will follow that up with the Data Act to come uh, later this year. But from the privacy and the copyright sort of line of thinking, uh, this way that you can trust, uh, you can trust your surroundings, you can trust your neighbors, you can trust your authority uh, in also, also in a digital world. Um, because of that, we will also launch the um, uh, regulation on, on AI to be trustworthy. That is also later this year uh, in a couple of months. But most uh, topical, probably uh, what we just launched, uh, the digital decade, which basically says, let's make sure when we do this, that we set a target, that we measure our target, that we know where to do in, in four uh, specific areas, uh, skills, both basic for everyone and high level uh, for 20 million people by, by 2030. Uh, the, uh, digitization uh, to reach everyone, so infrastructure, and then, of course, for businesses to make the most of it, and for government uh, to enable public services to be deliver delivered uh, in a digital way. Uh, that, of course, that's targeting and, and the milestones, they're important to make sure that we use taxpayers' funding in the best possible way and crowd in more uh, digital funding. And last but not least, of course, that we make sure that digital contributes to reaching our climate targets. There will be no green transition without a climate uh, target, without, uh, without digitization uh, to be used. One of the things that we probably also discussed today is the Digital Services Act and the Digital Markets Act, two pieces of regulation that comes together uh, to make sure that uh, that there is a, a democratic consequence of success. Uh, in Europe, you're more than welcome uh, to be successful in doing business, but with success comes power and with power comes responsibility. Uh, and this is why in, uh, in the Digital Markets Act, those who are very successful and has de facto become gatekeepers uh, in our digital markets, that they get a responsibility uh, that we have been inspired from uh, for the competition law enforcement, but also from uh, our market insights. So all of that and, uh, and much more for, for the next uh, 10 years to come. Uh, we are, of course, since this is about uh, the, the society that citizens live in and the perception of citizens, of course, is of crucial importance, because if you don't feel ownership, if you don't feel counted in, well, how would you ever feel that these decisions is something that is relevant for you. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why, why media is of crucial importance, because just as well as this can be used to bring people on board, 
it can be used to polarize us uh, to a degree that is unforeseen. Probably humans have been lying ever since we, we were able to speak, just guessing. Um, but the ability to detect when someone is, is telling you something that is not true, that has to reach completely different levels because the scope and the speed of, uh, of falsehood is so much bigger in a digitalized uh, democracy. Uh, and here, of course, media also plays a, an unforeseen important role in enabling us to come together as to what is reality, what problems uh, should we try to find uh, solutions for. Uh, and again, it boils down to the fact that technology is technology, how it's used, is up to uh, us as humans. How we see it to a very large degree is up to journalists. And this is one of the reasons why I've been really looking forward uh, for today's uh, discussion. So first and, and foremost, to, to sort of get us all warmed up, uh, maybe you would uh, take us through how your ways of working has changed uh, during the last year where everyone has been uh, working from home, uh, trying to make the most of, uh, of digital technology. Uh, Natalie, would you would you get us started? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 mind blowing that it's already been a year um, working from home, and I guess in some respects that's going to to stay the the same for a while, and, and even after the pandemic is over, I think everyone can expect um, more working from home going forward. I think the one downside has been, you know, not being able to attend conferences where you can have these casual discussions uh, with people like yourself and other executives and um, just exchange ideas there. You know, Zoom is great, but it's always a bit more formalized. Um, but yeah, there are pros. Like, I never thought I would be speaking to the digital commissioner while wearing yoga pants, for instance. But um, yeah, I mean, we just have to make do. And I think to some degree, I think working from home as a journalist is doable. I mean, we have Zoom and, and phone and that kind of thing. Ryan, uh, you are you're known uh, to know everything that is ongoing. How does one pick up uh, when you have to do it in a digital way? I'm, I'm really curious to hear this. Yeah. Well, you actually can't when you're in a new country. So I was around in the US for four or five months before the lockdowns began. And it means a lot of your relationships either never got started or were frozen in time to some extent. So I find it a bit fragmented and annoying now. Everything happens in these small increments. You're bombarded with messages from many platforms at once. Like I, I, my brain is fried at the end of the day. And I find real problems putting boundaries around that. And I feel guilty when I put boundaries around it. At the same time, just before I got on this call, I was interviewing the foreign minister of Austria and he was pointing out some stuff about how he can get on the phone now with Anthony Blinken all the time, or he's in much better touch with his other European colleagues. And, and that was an accurate point as well, where there's now a consistency to the communication, where it's not these peaks and troughs of running into you at a conference and then no contact for six weeks sort of thing. I can have these incremental relationships but I feel like I, I'm not doing the bonding that I want to do that makes people want to spill all of that tea to me. So yeah, a lot of downs, but you manage. And, and Kara, starting a, a podcast uh, under yeah. these circumstances, 
circumstance, how is that? Because you can possibly not be sort of uh, with the people that you talk with. Yeah, I've been working from home for 20 years. So I started uh, my company at home and worked in the back of a cottage and had people remote for a long time. So we've been using all the various digital tools to communicate with each other for a long time. And I think this is the way most people will be working going forward, or there's going to be a, a huge prevalence. Um, when you think about what's going to happen and what's going to change, you sort of think about COVID learnings, if you want to use that term. Um, I think they're going to, you're going to look at each area and see which one did better. And I think the idea of travel is going going to be lessened by significantly. It also has a climate change uh, uh, benefits and people not traveling as much. You'll see more uh, people working from home. I talked to the head of India's biggest conglomerate and he said he had 30% of people working home before the pandemic and after the pandemic, he expects 70% of people to work at some point at home during the week to for convenience sake and things like that. Um, and money saving and all kinds of there's all kinds of cost savings and a lot of companies will take advantage of it. And then other places like teleeducation has worked somewhat for older kids, but definitely not for younger kids in this country. The, the, the It's just been a disaster here from a mental health perspective and a learning perspective. Um, and and other, uh, other stuff will stick. And so I do think I've been fine. I started the entire Sway podcast online and we use a lot of really great uh, technology to, to have these interviews. And they're actually quite intimate in some ways um, to be doing them like this. And I, you know, if you can physically, if you can see them while you're doing, I just did Spike Lee yesterday, this, earlier this week, but we had a really great conversation. We we're looking right at each other. Um, it might've been different in person. I do, I used to do maybe half my interviews in person before, and now I do them all online. Um, I don't know if I'll go back to doing them in person as much as I used to. I, I don't know. We'll see. It just depends on the person, but definitely live events. We haven't done those, um, but we pulled off some very great live events. We did a pivot school uh, live and it was terrific and we had great response. Uh, so I think it's, 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 we'll see. We'll see. I think there'll be definitely more tele, telework being done by everybody uh, largely because businesses want to save money and greed is always a, always the factor that seems, tends to win out in these, in these arenas. Well, thank you. Um, John, uh, you also been, uh, been working from, from home at least, uh, partly. So, so how to check sources if, uh, if they tell you the full story, that must be sort of a key of, uh, uh, of a journalistic uh, tool. Yes, I've had kind of two experiences uh, from working from home. I mean, one has been at, with my FT hat on. Uh, we're a 133-year-old institution, and I didn't think it was possible to produce a newspaper and a website uh, entirely remotely. I used to be a news editor um, in London um, a few years ago and would have thought it was unimaginable that we could have done it. Uh, but I salute my colleagues because we have been able to produce a newspaper which we print globally and we've produced a website every day um, and video and audio as well, all remotely. Um, I think that's a phenomenal achievement. Uh, with another hat on, I've had um, uh, two years ago, I launched a website um, which is backed by the FT but is independently run called sifted.eu, which is writing about European startups. Um, and we have a team now of about 25 people. Uh, this has been a very strange experience because I haven't met in person half the people who now work for the company and hiring people remotely is a very strange thing. Um, so I'm quite intrigued actually to find the people, uh, to meet the people that we've hired uh, doing this. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. To get to your question on sources, I mean, I think um, 
we're very, I suspect we're all very hev heavily reliant on talking to people that we have already met in real life before. Um, it's obviously incredibly hard to establish a rapport on a Zoom call or just on the telephone. Uh, so I think that is hard. Um, but that said, um, a lot of important people have been traveling a lot less and therefore they have more time, I think, to speak to journalists. So I've been quite surprised by the ability to pin people down. Um, in, uh, that's been a lot easier. And I get the sense that a lot of kind of CEOs or officials are actually extraordinarily bored um, and they're quite happy to talk to journalists. Uh, they want to have a few contacts with um, people outside their own bubbles. Well, yes, I, I think you have a you have a good point in uh, in that by now people are are getting bored. They're done with Netflix and uh, you know also puzzles. They have their limited uh, charms. So no, I, I think you're right. Uh, there is something there. But but I've been wondering if uh, since the state has taken a different uh, role, uh, how you see this. Uh, but also if you have a sense of communication being more controlled, uh, more uh, limited, more directed with, with fewer uh, sort of voices uh, of opposition or, or criticism. Who would want to kick that off, uh, Ryan? Yeah, I, I would say that there is um, two answers to the question, at least in my view. Uh, so the first one is yes to John's point, more access than ever because people aren't stuck on planes in the way that they used to be. But because we're accelerating use of all of these digital platforms, you have people with more ways to control their message. Uh, and to your earlier point about gatekeepers, yes, gatekeepers have more ways to block us from getting to people like you at different points. And I think individually, some of this doesn't matter, but in aggregate, it's a big problem. Um, you know, one other point I wanted to mention was uh, we see a lot of leaders who now go and get interviewed either by other CEOs or by think tanks, for example. Um, and that doesn't matter in a one-off situation, but in aggregate, when the idea is that uh, leaders can avoid hard questions, I think we might look back in five or 10 years and think, why did we blow up our democracy in this way? And it's very hard for a journalist to say that. You, you basically sound like a whiny bitch if you say like, oh, I got passed over for an interview because you went to the Atlantic Council. Um, but that is like going to be a tension going forward, I think. And I hope leaders still come and talk to us. But I think we can make a deal here because if journalists stop interviewing journalists, I'm, I'm sure the rest will also disappear more or less. <laughs> okay, fair point, I take that. <laughs> uh, Nadia, how, uh, Natalia, how do you, how do you see this? Uh, do you feel that communication is, is more controlled now? Is it more difficult to find an, a crit critical voice? I mean, I guess to some extent it hasn't changed that much in terms of finding sources, if that's what you're, if that's what you're asking. Um, but I think it's true that technology has really exacerbated and polarized uh, certain views. At least that's what you see on Twitter, and, and those are the views that are that are more ex exacerbated and and can drive the news of the day. Um, I mean, like the GameStop Reddit uh, example is a good good one. Um, you know, this all just kind of started or ballooned out of discussions that were on a, a social media platform, and and obviously wasn't filtered through journalists um, 
and that kind of thing. So, you know, I think that is that is a trend that is is accelerating is accelerating. Uh, thank you, um, Gara. The way the way you work, uh, mm -hmm. do, you, do you find that uh, that there is a, there is more control of, uh, of sort of uh, messaging from authorities, uh, uh, and that people are also asking for uh, for less uh, criticism, or or is that very different from uh, from country to country depending on culture? Well, I, I don't live in other countries, so I can only say what happens here. I wrote about, I'm sorry, I'm back on my phone because we're, of course, having an internet outage here in, the, in DC. Um, but uh, I think one of the things that's interesting is how much the, what's come into sharp relief is how much we rely on tech. And you've noticed how wealthy the tech companies have gotten over the past uh, couple of months and through no innovation. Like some, I don't begrudge people making money from innovation, but this is just because we're using their stuff more and we are dependent on them in a way that we, we now recognize is really problematic. And so one of the things that's interesting is, is the vaccine distribution system. I just wrote about it last week in the New York Times, which I, I don't know what's happening in each of your countries or all the countries, but in this country, there's 57 different tech systems addressing all the different populations, which seems insane when we have national ability to do these things and global ability to do these things. And so there's been a lot of criticism that each state or municipality has a different technology solution. And here in DC, Microsoft was the vendor for DC, um, and this, the the government settled on a, a one tier a one tier system where everybody runs through the door at the same time. Um, which you can imagine, I called it the vaccine hunger games that anyone was trying to get in. And when they opened it for a, a group larger than the, the small group they started with, it became a disaster. And you started. I was like, I was sort of like the 1980s called and want their internet back. Um, it was you know slows, captured didn't work, and things like that. And so. I, me and many others are very critical of how DC rolled out that system because it wasn't effective. And, and you understood what they were trying to do. They were trying to reach more vulnerable populations, especially people of color uh, and el the elderly um, who had been impacted more, which is the smart thing to do. Um, but the way they did it was, was both unfair and useless. And so, you know, there's been a lot of criticism. And initially they started to blame the user, like, well, you shouldn't rush into the door. You know, that was the first thing or, or clear your cash. That was another thing the CTO of DC said. I was like, nobody knows how to, I know how to clear my cash, but it's hard for me to clear my cash. And I had three browsers going and two different computers. So I'm very tech literate and I still didn't get an appointment. And so I think, I think people are aware of the fact that they depend on technology and that the excuse that government shouldn't be able to monitor technology is over. I mean, this is kind of, it's like saying, the, you know, I'm in government, I don't know how to use roads or telephones or things like that. It, it needs to be the, the upgrading of technology systems uh, with control by the government has to be very, we have to really assess what happened, especially around vaccine distribution. And at the same time with these, with these hacks that are going on, how the government talks to each other about uh, cyber issues has to be more coordinated in some fashion. Solar winds and and this new Microsoft Exchange hack just goes right to the heart of the fact that we are jacked in here and and are not getting results and at the same time are much more vulnerable than ever before. Would you uh, would you pick up on that, uh, John? Um, this issue about how do we see technologies on on, on balance? Because on the one hand side. 
there's been a lot of, uh, of, of value uh, created with, uh, with big tech, while at the same time, uh, a lot of breakthrough innovation has been made uh, uh, thanks to tech. Uh, the vaccines, I think, is an obvious example to that. While at the same time, I think Keras' uh, ex experience is something that a lot of people have experienced. Uh, that still, if, if there is a giant uh, use or a giant, giant demand uh, for something, then uh, it can be very difficult for the solution actually to, to be able to manage. Uh, so on balance, uh, how, do you, how do you see tech uh, today? Uh, is it, uh, as you would ask me, is it a winner or a loser? Well, I mean, tech itself has clearly been a winner. I mean, we've seen astonishing uh, rises in the share prices of all the big tech companies. Um, I do think uh, that we as journalists focus rightly on a lot of the negative aspects of technology and a lot of things that need to be fixed. But I think um, we, there is a case for um, focusing a lot more on the, a lot of the positive aspects of tech. Um, and in particular, um, I talk about healthcare. Um, I mean, I think, um, in my own country, Britain, uh, we've had an extraordinarily mixed experience of uh, how tech has dealt with um, healthcare. Uh, the test and trace system has been a, pretty much a disaster. Um, people have distrusted it. Um, uh, we've had really very poor communication, I think, uh, of what's gone on. Um, but when you look across Europe, uh, we all have publicly um, funded healthcare systems and the possibilities for using technology to improve healthcare uh, is just enormous. Um, and for, uh, when we were able to travel, I used to go to a really fascinating conference in Stanford on kind of uh, healthcare and AI. And they would gather together a lot of computer scientists and healthcare experts and academics and doctors and talk about how you could run a healthcare system in an ideal way if you, everyone had access to the data and how you could use it to um, improve the administration of healthcare, run hospitals more efficiently, uh, reduce costs, uh, develop drugs more effectively. Um, and it's extraordinarily difficult to do that in a, such a fragmented healthcare system as in America. But there's an enormous opportunity, I think, in Europe to do things differently through kind of publicly funded healthcare systems. Um, the NHS in Britain is trying to uh, get um, its act together in this front. But I mean, I think that's where there could be a lot more emphasis on thinking about positive use cases of data and how policy can help support that. Uh, indeed, um, indeed, I myself have been a bit disappointed in, in, in some of the solutions on, on Kara's point, that if you can be together, if you can see each other, if you can have eye contact, uh, it can be great. And I, I still think that some of our, our meeting formats, uh, they really, really need uh, improvements uh, in order to bring us uh, closer to one another. But that's maybe a, a, a personal uh, uh, note uh, on, uh, on that. Um, if you, if you look at, uh, at this sort of increase in, in, in value uh, that has been there, um, the display of, uh, of all the positive things that can be achieved, uh, what do you think that we should think about uh, when we are on, on this mission uh, to disable the dark side of, uh, of tech to, to enable uh, the positive uh, potential? Anyone? Yeah, well, we, 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 oh, go ahead. I was just, just... I'll give you the, the unorthodox answer. And I think you've already been on this track for a while, Commissioner. 
it's related to tax, you know, like I accept all the points about accountability of tech and proper rigorous enforcement of rules. But until we collect enough tax to fund the systems that allow equitable access to vaccines or technology or any other infrastructure that we want, we're screwed in lots of ways. And as the tech companies have accumulated all of this value at these crazy high profit margins through questionable business models, until we figure out a way to, to crack the tax nut, I, I'm not sure that we're gonna achieve a lot of the things that we wanna achieve. And I know you've tried on your state aid rules. And I, I think there's better solutions and you use the only tools you had, um, but I would just say tax, tax, tax. Kara, what do you think? You, you were, um, I saw you jumping in. I think she just- She just jumped out. Yeah. Just um, well, Natalie, you take it from here then. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I agree with Ryan. I think it's clear that, that the commission and, and you as well have, have tried to address, um, you know, the negative sides with the various regulation. I mean, the tricky, the tricky side, the tricky aspect is that we've seen that despite you know, the many rules that Brussels has come out with, it still hasn't addressed some of these major problems or it hasn't fixed it. Um, somehow it just kind of keeps slipping through. Um, in terms of what could be done, you know, it's, um, I, I don't have a good answer there. Um, it's, a, it's a tricky one. Like, you know, with the, with the DMA and the DSA, I think it's clear that Brussels is trying a different approach um, on that front, you know, in terms of, uh, in terms of tackling illegal content, in terms of tackling, um, you know, bad behavior and, and market power. Um, and, and it, you know, will be, I'll be curious to see if that works. Um, the, 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 you know, the downside is that it will also take time to enforce because the, the DMA will require probes as, as do comp competition investigations so you know it's also something that will take time and and the more time that we give you know we allow these these uh, harmful effects to to continue um gathering steam on the internet well well actually we we try to avoid exactly this point of uh, of uh, very lengthy uh, procedures uh by being able to designate a gatekeeper uh, on objective and, and um, qualitative and, and quantitative uh, criteria exactly because of this. But Kara, I see that you're back. Yeah, sorry about that. I don't, something's going wrong with the Kaflui uh, today, of course, here uh, with the internet. I don't know what's going, there's some construction going on. I suspect they keep getting uh, stopped. Um, the point I was making before was that we've seen the dark side rather clearly on January 6th. Um, with the attack on the Capitol and the very close linkage. If you look at all the pleadings by the various people who were being arrested, who have been arrested and, and are on their way to jail, presumably, um, is they all say they learned everything on Facebook or on Parler or something like that. Or this was, you can't, you can't fully blame social media, but the constant drumbeat of, of propaganda that occurred and was reinforced over and over again is something that, that is being looked at. We're going to be having hearings about that very soon. Um, but one of the things that really drives me crazy is in 2019, I like sketched out this exact scenario of Trump losing, putting out propaganda about election fraud and then calling for incitement of violence. This is stuff that should have been anticipated uh, by a lot of these social media companies. And again, you and I have talked about this issue 
is that there, you know, if there's a dark side, there is a dark side. And we have to figure out how to, especially in this country, where we do have the First Amendment, how to how to get government involved here in ways that are positive, either through taxation or liability or something else, because we certainly can't do it by fiat, by saying, by a, a speech fiat. And so it's a really difficult thing. But what happens is in this, in the white space, these companies are allowed to get bigger, stronger, hire more lobbyists and have more influence. And that's the problem we face is, is, is not so much speed in that, once, well, speed, yes, the United States has had almost no legislation whatsoever that counts for tech companies. But the, the, the proof of the problem, for some reason, keeps getting proved and nobody does anything about it. And that's the difficulty we face in this country is actually putting into place guardrails that are necessary to control big tech, including whether it's antitrust or anything else. And I think the two appointments that are happening in the Biden administration are really indicative of where they are. Uh, with Lena Khan, which is supposedly going to be an FTC commissioner, which is one of the key uh, agencies. Possibly if they decide to give more money to the FTC would be another big sign if Congress does and more uh, heft. Um, and then of course, Tim Wu at the National Economic Council. So the indications from the Biden administration and some bipartisan legislation that is going forward um, is really, will, will be interesting to see what happens. Um, I mean, we're never where you guys are years ago, but it's certainly moving in that direction. And that, uh, that question of, uh, of how to enable change, uh, we see increasing budgets uh, for lobbying uh, in Brussels. Um, and, you know, sort of kind of the first uh, sentence in any book of economics, uh, you only pay if it works. So uh, you are some of the people who, uh, who must be uh, quite, you know, the targeting for, for, for that lobbying. Uh, because it's more, much more uh, refined uh, than going directly uh, for the legislature. So, so, so how, do you, how do you deal with that? Uh, you, must, uh, you must have quite a, a balancing act to do to figure out what is, uh, what is legitimate uh, taking care of interests and when am I being a tool for, for someone who basically just wants to, uh, to have their message uh, through in, uh, in a somewhat, well, in your case, really credible way. Natalie, I can jump in um, really quick. I mean, I think that's why it's so important um, to have journalists because in, in general, most of us are trained to, to balance our reporting as much as possible. So even if, um, you know, we have to report, you know, a company's specific argument, even if we might not agree with it, um, we also have to consider the, the opposite side of it. I mean, I think what, what I find challenging is spe uh, specifically when it comes to lobbying um, and hearing the company's arguments with regards to regulation is that we often hear the same argument, which is that, you know, this is the X regulation is gonna harm uh, our ability to innovate. And we've heard that all along. We've heard that, you know, since, Brussels was discussing GDPR, and then a few years later, they turn around and say, oh, actually, we're big proponents of GDPR. So, you know, it's it's a bit of like a boy cried wolf situation, and you have to really understand the arguments to see, you know, whether there is credibility there or not. John, do you want to add something on this? 
Yeah, I mean, I very much agree with Natalia. Um, but I do think it's a, a case of very much that um, governments and journalists have to um, talk to and understand the case of the insurgents in many, many of these industries as much as the incumbents. Um, and clearly, um, uh, the structures that we've had um, do uh, favor uh, the people with power. Um, and you know, uh, as Cara was saying, the kind of competition rules um, have been very much focused on what is the consumer welfare. Um, and that is not obvious in many of these uh, cases with tech. And Tim Wu and Lena Khan and the EU Commission itself clearly have been trying to rethink that. Uh, should we be thinking about market structures and the ability of people to compete? I think that's a far more fruitful area um, of activity. So I think um, certainly as journalists, um, we should listen to um, the powerful tech companies and we should try to understand what they're saying. But I think that a lot of academics who don't have any particular interest in uh, a subject, although that in itself is difficult because so many academics are now linked to uh, companies or think tanks or uh, whatever, there are very few truly independent voices. I think civil society, but I think particularly kind of insurgent companies who are trying to do things in different ways and are competing against the big tech companies, we should listen very carefully to what they are telling us and to give them a fair hearing. I would say, I would add that the economics of this whole dynamic is very difficult. So you look at what was the market cap those big five or six companies gained over the last year, $2.7 trillion, something in that order. Um, you look at the sort of fines that you've issued against them, Commissioner, you know, even several billion at a time. So what's $5 billion on, million on lobbying in comparison to that? It's literally a rounding error. So they cannot lose by spending that lobbying money, even if it doesn't really get them anywhere. And a very good case in point um, that I remember from my time working with Nelly Cruz back, um, uh, your predecessor at the EU, when we did the first billion dollar fine against Intel, we'd actually calculated that they got away with 21 billion in illegal behavior um, that we were enforcing against them. So there's still 20 billion up after all of the lobbying and all of the bad behavior. So it's a very hard position for you to be in. At the same time, I think they're often very inefficient. And I'll use Facebook and Sheryl Sandberg as an example there, where I know Facebook is one of the big spenders, but they don't really read their own press. Like there's just so many silos and walls in that company now. So the top people like Mark and Nick and Cheryl are all insulated. You go somewhere like Davos, they invite you into their fancy little pavilion that they set up. They are, have zero interest in answering your questions or even listening to you. They will herd you into a room for like a five person focus group. Cheryl will come in with a Madonna microphone and go through some bullshit theater about how uh, this is because it's to protect her voice. And then she just talks at you for an hour. And it's the biggest waste of an hour ever. I won't do it anymore, basically. So it's it's got this guise of being very sophisticated lobbying and it's total nonsense. And I think a lot of that is falling flat, but they have a lot of incentives to just keep doing it and you know hope something sticks. They do, they are going out lately. I've noticed Facebook has gone out lately to a lot of friendly journalists, more friendly journalists, if you notice. I've been trying to get Mark, uh, he's, he doesn't have a great time doing interviews with me, but I think it shows what he actually thinks. But um, but he's, uh, you're gonna see a, like a real press of friendly or journalists that people that'll, they just wanna hear your point of view. Um, I think they're, they will not be doing tough interviews or anywhere where they can expose themselves or step up in some way. And that makes sense for them. I think what's important to keep in mind, to get up what you just said, is that these companies are, there's no such thing as big tech. I keep saying this, there's no such thing. 
there is Apple, which has a particular problem that can be fixed, you know, and probably in a much easier way. You have Microsoft, another bunch of issues. Amazon, another very different group of issues around marketplace, uh, largely around marketplace and employees, essentially. You have Uber, for example, employees are the issue there. Um, and then you have companies like Google and Facebook, which are unique in terms of monopolistic practices and, and, and sort of um, menace behavior. And so that's the difficulty is that we tend to lump them in when in fact, there are some you can work with, like what, what Apple is doing around Facebook will probably be much more effective than any 10 legislators, like cutting, putting that opt, that opt in notice that they're going to do is much more effective about dealing with that, with Facebook than I think anybody else. That's their existential threat, not, not, uh, any any regulator in Brussels or the United States, really? Yeah, I I think it's uh, it's it's really interesting to see that that there is actually someone uh, who is doing things that that people will have to see up up front. Uh, and on that note, uh, we have heard a number of the of the tech companies calling for regulation now for quite some time. Uh, has that any bearing or is that just a uh, where is my where is my next defense? Uh, I should call for for some regulation because probably they'll never, ever get to it. And if they get to it, they will never implement it or, or enforce it. Well, it advantages the big companies to do, you know, it, it, it puts things into amber, essentially. And so I think the stuff we need to look at is their acquisitions and to, to facilitate more support for small startups. You're starting to see some competition in the social media space right now. You're starting to see little bits of competition in the in the e-commerce space. And so governments have to encourage that while at the same time designing the laws that will not advantage the larger companies and their, their teams of lawyers and lobbyists and such. Uh, John, on uh, you, you know this uh, from the SIFTED uh, work that you do, uh, this, uh, uh, intersection uh, between smaller companies, startup, what is new, and uh, and the incumbents. Uh, is there a tension here that the the bigger ones they are basically asking for for regulation uh, for that uh, to help them against the smaller ones who will have more difficulties in uh, in dealing with uh, with regulatory pressure. Sure, um, I think you definitely saw that with kind of GDPR, and um, that uh, this was, I think, a very good attempt to try to. Uh, put privacy at the focus of everyone's attention. But I mean, as Cara was saying, I think it has uh, benefited a lot of the incumbents, the, um, the big tech companies, uh, if I can use that term, um, have found it very easy to comply with it. I mean, it costs them a lot of money, but they could afford to do so. And a lot of smaller companies have really struggled to comply with GDPR. It's been a lot costlier. Um, and there has been a kind of moat uh, that has been uh, built around um, some of the uh, tech companies. So I think, um, yes, I mean, uh, uh, reducing regulation, enabling companies to compete is, is also um, uh, a factor that uh, we should bear in mind when we're trying to promote competition. Um, regulation can help uh, promote competition, but it can also stifle it as well. And trying to get that balance right is an extraordinarily difficult thing. One of the things that we have tried in, in both the Digital Services Act and Digital Markets Act is to to have an asymmetry uh, so that we have a very light touch, if any, uh, on smaller businesses, but an increasing uh, obligation uh, uh, on, on companies, the bigger they get. Uh, 
and of course the, the most sort of heavy-handed um, uh, press here on uh, on what we call call gatekeepers. There is a comment uh, in in the Q and A uh, facility, and I will encourage people to use it if you have a, a question here. A comment saying, "Well, um, that uh, a, a competition case or regulation would kill innovation." That was the Microsoft uh, argument uh, 15, 10, 15 years ago. It's the Google uh, argument uh, now. Uh, that doesn't seem to have any bearing. But but where where do you see? Uh, innovation in uh, in this game sort of in in the broader space uh, are we here uh, back to the uh, acquisition uh, issue or is that just a sort of sense of distributed uh, innovation ryan yeah well i think you have the answer in your own numbers already um the eu if it where it's been soft if i may say so the softest part of the competition infrastructure is mergers like much more of like so many of them get cleared, let's say. So you've got a lot of scope to move there. But competition is what drives innovations. And when you have these clogged up markets with a few people or one person, one company dominating them, that's when innovation is held back. You made your digital decade announcement yesterday, I think, or Tuesday, sorry. Um, and the very next day, Apple, who you took to the cleaners for $15 billion over their Irish taxes, announces chip production in Germany. So you know, like they weren't scared off by you making a tough announcement. Um, they're always going to have the scope to do that as big companies. And the more competition that you try and juice into the market, the more innovation that they're going to be forced to deliver. Um, and, and to circle back slightly to one of those regulation points, you know, I looked at the Facebook Australia situation and one of my takeaways, I'm always trying to look for some other deeper layer rather than what's at the surface. And the way that Microsoft came behind and backed the Australian government in that case, they obviously had a competitive interest to do it, but what they were really doing was learning the lesson of all the EU's enforcement from 15, 10 years ago. And it was finally an example of a big tech company that backed a specific regulation. Instead of saying, you know, we support regulation in general, but we just hate this regulation and we just hate this amendment. You know, they finally got the message and, and, and backed it. And I think that if you keep enforcing in 15 years, the others will have the message as well. But, but you know, if I should ever have a tattoo, it would be competition drives innovation uh, because it is indeed true and it goes in every sector. So uh, um, message well taken. Uh, Natalie? Yeah, I was just gonna add, um, you know, I think one of the things that I've noticed about the EU as well in recent years, I think the discussion was, was so focused on regulation for so long and, and it is, you know, still to some extent now, but I think there is also greater awareness amongst the EU officials to look at other tools besides regulation to promote innovation. I mean, you have the this discussion around stock options, but also you know the European Innovation Council, which you um, which is now investing directly into startups with equity stakes, which is uh, you know it's it's quite remarkable. I think um, so. It'll be interesting to see if that that can you know provide another balance to the regulatory side in terms of promoting innovation. I mean, just to pick up on what Natalia is saying, I mean, I think there is uh, this new generation of entrepreneurs that is emerging around Europe, which I think is incredibly encouraging and inspiring to see. Um, we're seeing companies emerge from all over Europe who are doing things um, uh, in different ways and challenging some of the established companies. I mean, I think the emblematic company in a way is 
and a UI path which emerged in Bucharest, a robotics process automation company, um, now worth about $35 billion at the last valuation it had in New York. Um, many companies are emerging uh, around Europe, and I think that's where we ought to kind of be pinning our hopes on. That there is going to be a kind of new um, surge of these companies emerging that we can uh, hope for. Um, just to go back to Ryan's point on Australia, I mean, I personally thought that was a really bad law uh, that the Australian government um, tried to introduce, and pretty much everyone was wrong in that dispute. If the Australian government wants to support the media, then I think they should tax um, big companies uh, properly and then have a very discreet program of supporting public journalism, if that's what you believe in. But to try to intervene in a kind of intercorporate dispute between the social media companies and the news media seemed to me to be a ridiculous thing to do. Um, and then the way that um, Google responded, um, cutting a side deal with the Murdoch empire, the way that um, Facebook then deplatformed Australia. I think everyone um, uh, was pretty much in the wrong. And Microsoft, I think, actually, it was a, quite a cynical move by them, uh, the way that they intervened. In and, and not, but and not one journalist was helped. Not one. There wasn't one more hiring, one more new thing. You're right. Okay. The taxing is the way you go to it. What's really interesting is you all have an opportunity now. There is a lot more innovation. And look at look at the the public offering of Roblox today a company that moved into a white space, like moved into a space where that you had these big companies sort of deciding what would and would not get um, approved, like publishers essentially. And then you have this other company that has a platform that it also stresses safety of children on. So they're moving into a white space of like people are tired of it or Shopify, moving into a white space of, of retailers dissatisfied by Amazon. These, now it's, I think it's up to $65 billion from 3 billion. I mean, that's very encouraging. They've decided to like lean into safety. They've decided there's all kinds of opportunities in the, in the entrenched businesses already in social media and lots of places, whatever you think of, of, of TikTok, it's moved into the nicer social media space where it's safer, where they spend a lot of time um, dealing with it. They're not always successful, but they de that's definitely their aim. And so what's really interesting to me is when you get into the ones that are actually truly competitive, cloud computing, AI, healthcare, climate change tech, this is a, there's real, and, and talk about autonomous vehicles, there's 400 companies now. Now that's gonna be squished down at some point, but it really, it shows the value of how quickly um, things can happen if there is competition within a space. Um, and then the ones going into the future are critical, especially climate change tech, that we have a robust, innovative, group of startups coming from all over the world, coming up with all kinds of solutions, whether it be cap, uh, carbon capture, which is just a mitigation strategy, whether it be clean energy, whether clean electricity, clean steel, clean, you know, what happened in Germany around clean steel was really interesting. And so the, going forward, the promotion of these startups, in, especially in spaces that don't have a dominant character in it is really critical for governments to think about. And then lastly, I just did an interview with um, Mariana Matsukato, who's talking about the role of government. This idea that government doesn't have a role is just, and, and, and that Silicon Valley pushes that they're the only ones that can innovate. Most of these Silicon Valley innovators got money from government. Elon Musk is one of the most famous examples. He got billions of dollars to get that company going and how he's reaping the rewards. Government should play a critical role in investment, in getting a piece of it, 
in, in, in pushing forward, whether it's space travel or climate change tech, and, and it should stop pretending that it shouldn't have a role or that it doesn't have the skills to do so, because it certainly does. That's my feeling. And I really, I recommend reading uh, Mariana's uh, book. The re recent one is called Mission Economy, um, which is super interesting of these public-private partnerships. Well, I think you, you definitely find uh, here, uh, both at the European level and at national level in, in the union, uh, that government would push uh, for innovation and make, uh, you know, risk willing capital uh, available. But maybe lastly, just one point uh, before we stop uh, on again on this Australian issue, because it, it made the global press. It was mm -hmm. it was everywhere, no matter where one is in, in, uh, in the different aspects of it. It was all over the planet. Uh, the French uh, issue with uh, with Google, uh, where you both have the competition uh, law enforcer having a case. And you have the back and forth with publishers uh, because French France was, was the first to uh, uh, to implement uh, the copyright directive. Uh, that kind of news didn't travel very fast, uh, and basically it's kind of the same. It's the same story. Uh, you have the publishers, you have the country, you have the giants coming in. It's the same narrative, and, and yet it didn't travel, uh, not at all to the same degree. Uh, is that a language issue or uh, why do you think uh, that this happened? Because the Australian issue, I think it put it on everyone's um, map, not only as Australia, but also the question of how should value be distributed? Um, I'll, I'll dive in as the Australian, no one else wants to. Um, it's partly language, but I think it's partly timing. So. Those first, I think, are four years old now, maybe. We, we saw before that the Belgian newspapers and then the Spanish cases with, with Google News as well. And they were about really discrete services within the whole company, whereas Facebook has just become this one blob, like it's this walled garden. Um, and that, that, I think, the, the English language, that Facebook is all a blob now, um, and it's trying to blob its WhatsApp and its Instagram all in together as well. And the fact that you have Rupert Murdoch as a protagonist and catalyst, you know, he, he's the real monopolist in that situation. They own 70% of the Australian newspaper circulation and one of the big TV networks. So it's just this clash of titans when you throw that all together as a journalist narrative. Um, and we've had three or four more years, that was my original point, of tech being the bad guys and people getting suspicious of them. So I think that's the, the ingredient, um, ingredient mix there. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you, Ryan. Like, I, I suspect it has a lot to do with the players involved um, in the Australia debate because I was also a bit surprised. Like, did everyone forget the years of um, contentious copyright debate that we had here? I mean, I it's it, yeah, it's like no one remembered that there was actually uh, a law that was passed in the EU that was addressing very similar issue. Yes, and in, 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 a, in a quite uh, interesting environment, because uh, here the lobbying was done by basically uh, teenagers uh, who was alerted to the question of uh, Article 13, I think, via mm. YouTube. And all of a sudden, you know, members of parliament had to answer over the dinner table uh, to their teenagers as to wh what they were doing. Uh, so I, I think uh, lobbying to a completely uh, different degree with uh, also very trustworthy people with very uh, good access uh, to, to uh, lawmakers here. Um, 
I have learned a lot. Uh, my, my great admiration and respect for you and the job you do uh, is now even bigger. Uh, I have realized that journalism or moderating should not be my fallback position. So I, I may have to go for a third mandate. Uh, pity everyone on that one. Uh, you still made but, a headline out of this with that line. <laughs> <laughs> no, not so much. Not so much. Uh, but I, I'm still experimenting to see if any of those services would allow you to crack a joke, uh, because that is one of the things I, I think we really lost. During the pandemic, it's a sense of humor because it's really, really yeah. difficult uh, to maintain yeah. that. That affects whatever, sense of humor, not allowed. Uh, but I want to thank you wholeheartedly. It has been for me really, really interesting. Uh, I hope someone out there has enjoyed it uh, as well uh, because you have uh, insights uh, and you have a really difficult and really important uh, job to do. So. I will let you get on with that and uh, send you a warm thank you uh, from here. Uh, and the thank rest, uh, Victoria, is for you. I'd like to thank you very much, Mrs. Bestiger. For, I, I think you're overly modest. I think um, another career could be um, an interviewer. And thank you so much, um, our journalists, panelists. It was just fascinating, the discussion. I'm really loath to call it to an end, but um, that's great. Thank you so much. and. Um, Bye for now.